Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Global Visions podcast. My name is Ashton Higgins, and I'll be today's host. The podcast is produced in conjunction with the Brown Journal of World Affairs and seeks to explore international affairs and policy issues via a series of interviews with distinguished academics, policymakers, and activists. We are super excited to be hosting our next guest of the podcast today, Dr. Jenny Tsai. Dr. Tsai is an emergency medicine physician resident at Yale University and is a huge advocate for health and climate equity. She's focused her work on race-based medicine and the intersectionality of race, health, and society. Lastly, Dr. Sai encourages conversations on critical race theory and the impacts of racism on community and individual health. Dr. Sai, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for joining us today. Our first question is, what made you first want to become a doctor? I actually wanted to be a vet when I was little because uh, I was very beholden to animals. I think, you know, the classic... I like science and I wanted to help people. It's like so trodden and so classic that it's boring, but I do think there is some truth to it and that's why people parrot it. I think it's really hard to know what it means to be a doctor at a young age. And um, I'll be honest, I think when I started wanting to be a doctor uh, in high school, a lot of it had to do with filial piety. And I think a lot of it was that at you know, 14, 15 or whatever time, it was impossible to really recognize and to understand what being a doctor was going to be. And I don't think I had a very mature idea about what being a doctor was going to be. So I think, you know, pretty early on that idea of like being interested in science and being interested in the human body and the bigger questions about what it means to live a good life and to be healthy and to be well. And um, what does it mean to be able to help people who are suffering? Those all kind of captured me. But I I think I had a very romanticized view of what being a physician was. Yeah, for sure. And then you work in social emergency medicine. So why is that so important? I think most of the time visits to the emergency department can be seen as a failure of the healthcare system in one way or the other. Certainly, you know, you get things like traumatic injuries and uh, tragic accidents or somebody got hit by a car, somebody, you know, X, Y, and Z. And that's that's kind of the ideal of what an emergency room is for. But a lot of the other things that we see, whether it's heart failure or heart attacks or like really abnormal sugars in the setting of diabetes or psychotic breaks, a lot of these things are kind of demonstrative of our healthcare system not working very well. And so this idea of social emergency medicine kind of has a a closer look at that and a perspective that pays special attention to why that's happening and what we can do to be better about making sure those things don't come to the emergency department. And also when they do come to the emergency department, how we actually solve the problem at at hand uh, rather than slapping a Band-Aid on it and kind of moving on. It doesn't mean that we can do it all the time. And the emergency medicine department doesn't have the capability of solving a lot of these problems. But I think having that perspective around social EM and social medicine um, at least tries to be more careful and more thoughtful about how we could. What exactly would set social emergency medicine apart from the emergency medicine in practice? I, I don't think it's a very clear jurisdiction or a clear distinction, but I think people who are interested in social emergency medicine are a little bit more interested and have a deeper interest and a deeper perspective, especially around populations that are vulnerable and populations that are underserved by our current healthcare system. So homelessness, for example, 
psychiatric care, people who are veterans, people who don't have a lot of resources to live healthy lives, people who are immigrants or undocumented, people who have issues with substance dependence and addiction. Uh, These are people that are often seen in emergency departments and are kind of at risk for worse health outcomes and also kind of double down because they don't have the resources to make sure that they're actually going to have their problems solved. A regular emergency department or urgent care isn't going to be able to solve those problems. I think one of the reasons why I like emergency medicine is because it's good at what medicine is good at. It kind of plays to medicine strengths, you know, in an emergency where you don't have enough blood and you're bleeding out or you can't breathe and we have to intubate you or you are dying of infection and we have to give you antibiotics. Those are the things that medicine is really good at. Um, And that's kind of the acute care that I'm trained to do and that plays to medicine's strengths. I think the things that we're not good at, that we're not trained at and that, you know, we struggle with are things like homelessness or addiction. What do you do about that? And that's not what we learn in medical school. That's not necessarily what the medical side can address. And so social emergency medicine, I think, pays special attention to that. And I feel like you've mentioned a bit about the failures of the healthcare system and talking a lot about these marginalized populations. So I want to know what initially got you involved in this form of like healthcare activism and what sort of motivates you to continue your work in the field. I don't think I have a really great answer Other than this sounds kind of sappy, I just really, I think human suffering is worth our attention. I think it's one of the most important things that we can do ever. And it's not to say that my existence always thinks about human suffering. I, you know, I I live a pretty selfish, you know, most people in America live pretty selfish, carbon heavy lives. Uh, I'm not saying that I'm great at it or perfect at it, but I really do believe that human suffering is worth doing something about. I think some people feel an outsized responsibility to that and some people don't. And I and I don't have a good answer about why some people care and some people don't or how to get people to care. But I, I do really believe that it's worth our time and our attention. Also, like we go to Brown, you went to Brown. So I'm wondering how did your time at Brown provide any sort of unique perspectives to this work? I'm very, very, very grateful for Brown. Part of it is the program in liberal medical education. And being a plenie and coming in, knowing that I was going to medical school, like really, really opened up how I thought about education. Um, And without it, I would not have, you know, shopped these courses in ethnic studies and American studies and science and technology studies, history of medicine. Um, I'm pretty sure I would have gone straight neuroscience. Part of it is also not only that freedom to learn in those departments, but the amazing teachers and students and grad students who are in those departments, I'm very, very thankful to them. And I think without Brown, I would not have been exposed to the things that I was exposed to and also learned about the things that I learned about. I feel like the the professors at Brown are really unique. Lundy Braun, B-R-A-U-N, uh, we kind of joke is responsible for like radicalizing and helping develop a critical perspective for like generations upon generations of people who thought they wanted to do pre-med at Brown. And she is somebody that I cherish and feel really indebted to. That's somebody that I've worked with a little bit more closely, but you know, the whole ethnic studies department, I think helped me be a better person. And I would not have had that kind of education if I hadn't gone to Brown. 
And then now, I guess, sort of back to the healthcare aspect of all of this, why, like, what do you think are the biggest reasons why we need to address inequities in healthcare right now? I I think it goes back to my previous answer about human suffering. I, I, I think there are concrete numbers uh, for people who are compelled by those when you think about morbidity and disability and injury and illness. If you want to think about like children's education and lost number of income years and the amount of healthcare spending, you know, those are all true. Those are all real. We know that preventive care is the right way to think about a healthy healthcare system and a healthy country. But I think it comes back to, again, like health inequities are important because human suffering is important and justice is important and integrity about our healthcare system and care about one another and having a healthy community that can be well, that can thrive, that can love one another and not face life as this gauntlet of grinding suffering and injustice. I thought matters and we have the power and the ability to do something about it. And so we should. I guess we've sort of been talking a good bit about health inequities, but I think we should probably get into what those look like and how those are perpetuated. So what methods or pathways do you see to fixing these inequities and how and why are they already being perpetuated in our healthcare system? I think one of the answers to that is there are a lot of people interested in health policy without diving deep into the understanding that a lot of health policy has to do with politics. It has to do with our distribution of resources and our allocation of resources in the way that we think about a fair society. And so these issues with the healthcare system cannot be solved by medicine. They can't be solved by physicians. They can't be solved by you know, the right medication or a new moonshot cancer drug or X, Y, and Z. It it has to do with how we structure our society. It has to do with our education system and our criminal justice system, our system of neighborhood segregation and nutrition, and these big questions that, again, cannot be held in the hands of people in the medical field, which means it's all hands on deck, which means it has to have a perspective and capacity to think about these problems in ways much bigger than, you know, what genes are wrong in your body or what molecules or what levels of hormones have gone awry. It has to do with the haves and haves nots and how we are okay with an egregious amount of inequity in our communities from way before people are born. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I think when we're talking about a lot of these root issues, do you think that these issues exist in other countries or are a lot of these issues specific to the United States? And then I think on top of that, do you think the differences between American healthcare systems and the national healthcare system that other European countries have propagates these inequities? I think the general answer is, is sort of yes. I think in some ways America is unique because of the fact, you know, we're one of the few countries that still has like private insurance that's linked to your employment. We're still one of the few countries that allows such a vast and deep degree of direct consumer advertising. We have the system that so acutely bases what kind of healthcare you can receive on how much you can pay. I think one thing to keep in mind is that, yes, um, 
some of these problems are solved by having a national healthcare system. I am an advocate of single payer. I think it's really important, but to not have the misconception that we don't, we kind of have a national healthcare system. It's just the worst, most inefficient, most inappropriate, most cruel system, which is EMTALA, which is that, you know, if you are in a medical emergency, you can go to any emergency department. And regardless of your ability to pay, the doctors and medical team there will evaluate you and treat you. That is a healthcare system. That is a national healthcare system. It's illegal to say you can't pay, so we won't take care of you. It's just the absolute worst national system that you could come up with, which is that when you are at the, the, the stage where you are imminently going to die and when your life is imminently threatened, we will take care of you no matter what you can pay. That doesn't mean that you're still not going to get a bill. You will get a bill. That doesn't mean that you will have good health outcomes. It just means that we have a national system of healthcare. It's just very poor. And do you think current attacks on topics like critical race theory and American public schools affects healthcare and tackling health inequity when there's so much disinformation and altering of the way that children are being educated across the country? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's my prevailing thought on this is that I am so grateful for critical race theory. I I think it's part of, you know, what I learned at Brown and why I'm grateful to Brown. Learning about critical race theory and having it in my mind, I think has been so powerful in helping me understand the inequity that I see in the emergency department or in our healthcare system. I think it's just like this magnificent tool that can be so helpful in, in teasing apart and being really nuanced and careful about how we think about these problems, how we dissect them. And that means we're better at coming up with real solutions that can cause real change for the better. And so these attacks on critical race theory are a little bit, um, they're not altogether surprising to me, but they're, uh, they're so unfortunate because of the degree of power that I think things like critical race theory has. Um, I'm also a big, you know, supporter of sneaking kale into the smoothie as it were. So if we have to call it something different, if I have to, you know, call it something else in a presentation, but use the same uh, principles, like fine, I'll sneak kale into the smoothie. But um, by and large, I think critical race theory is so important to coming up with better solutions and to being better at appraising what the issues are. And so I do think these attacks um, really muddy the picture. It's creating this false enemy and it's undermining a system of perspectives that really could help us. I think during COVID, misinformation on vaccines or the pandemic or whatever it may be has been so, so heartbreaking. When I think about the worst years of COVID, the most emotional I get about a very emotional time is seeing these protests about not being willing to wear masks. You know, this was a time when I watched hundreds of people die and I watched so many of their family members, not watched because they weren't there. I heard so many family members cry and scream over the phone because they could not be together with their loved ones in the last moments of death. I witnessed so many people die alone in a hospital. I talked to mothers and fathers and daughters and cousins and girlfriends and wives and husbands who weren't allowed to hold this person's hand before they died one last time. And the most emotional I get is 
then turning on the news and seeing these people say that it wasn't real and that there's no point in masks and being unwilling to put on a mask because it was too annoying or because it was it was too heavy a burden to commit to. I will never stop being grateful for my N95 mask. Uh, you know, I was a I was a a young resident in the emergency department during the worst times of this pandemic and that mask saved my life over and over and over again. And not only that, but the confidence that it could save my life and could protect me from this thing also opened up so many parts of life that make life worth living, you know, like seeing people traveling, I felt like, you know, this thing would protect me so I can fly and go see my parents. I can fly and spend time with people that I care about as long as I wear this mask. And as long as we're careful, we can still do that. And so I will never stop being grateful for it. And to see people en masse uh, be, call it ungrateful for this thing or uh, disbelieving of this thing or just um, unwilling to use it, it broke my heart. This is such like a national issue and it's so imminent. So what actions can people that are not involved in the healthcare system, what actions can they take to help combat these forms of health inequity or to help alleviate those burdens? A lot of it is just that you have to care. And I don't, I know that's not a great answer, but when I think about, you know, people outside the healthcare system, people inside the healthcare system, um, it's a busy environment. It's easy to get distracted by the tasks that you have to do. And a lot of it just comes down to, you have to remember to care and you have to care. Um, there's this poem that I really love. And one of the lines, it, the poem is called To Be of Use. One of the lines at the end of the poem is, um, the work of the world is as common as mud. And I try to think about that a lot. You know, working against health care inequity and working for justice isn't necessarily like big flashy things. It's not like you know, it will take thousands of dollars and it will take, you know, huge movements and it will take a lot of effort. But also a lot of it is that the work of the world is as common as mud. It's like caring about people. It's like knowing that the person in front of you is human. It's working to remember that we're all tied together in community. It's being kind. It's being thoughtful. It's um, knowing that your consequences have actions. Yeah, I, I it's not a great answer to your question and I apologize, but I do think... Um, the work is as common as mud. It's everywhere. And it's uh, as long as you care, you'll find it. For sure. And then do you think that the medical community is already taking the proper steps on their own to remedy these issues? Or are there some failures that really do need to be addressed pretty eminently? Definitely both. Uh, I think there are steps being made. I think change is slow in every institution and certainly healthcare and medicine is, you know, medicine is one of the more conservative institutions. Um, and it's a very traditionalist hierarchical institution. Um, so I'm glad to see that there are steps being made, but um, there is still so, so much work to do. And we can kind of celebrate the triumphs and, and, and celebrate the progress that we see, um, but we also can't get distracted by that. Uh, there, there is so much work to be done in the healthcare system, despite the fact that there are things being done. What are some of those, I guess, positives that you've been seeing recently in the medical field? I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, and this is a little bit biased based on, you know, where I am in my career, but, but trainee advocacy and trainee activism, 
um, I think we are seeing really energized medical students and residents coming into the profession who have a different educational background um, than, you know, the traditional pre-med requirements, which does change the way that they approach these problems. Uh, You know, for a long time, pre-med education meant you take organic chemistry and physics and biology. And now, you know, more and more because of things like Pliny, because of things like just broadened educational interests and theory, you know, people are coming into medicine with backgrounds in poetry and sociology and English and anthropology and political science. And those change the way that you think about problems and understand problems. And I think the more diversity we have, the better we get at seeing our issues with fresh eyes and coming up with better solutions. And looking back a little bit, we talked about how politics has an influence on healthcare policy. So how much influence do you feel like politicians have on both perpetuating and solving a lot of these issues that we see broadly in healthcare? Tons, absolutely tons. And for the same reasons, health policy is directly a branch of politics. It comes to how you divide a pot of resources and what kind of suffering you think is acceptable. Abortion care is directly a political issue that has huge implications in the health outcomes of the entire country. The fabric of the country is changed because of recent changes in abortion rights. Uh, And that's just like one example, but I think most people can, can see how those threads kind of are relevant. When we think about a single payer system, a national healthcare system, when we think about uh, how academic and public hospitals are funded and where that funding comes from, when you think about how research dollars get spent and where that research money uh, comes from and how it's garnered and where it goes, all of these questions uh, have direct consequences on then how do patients get or not get the care that they need. And I feel like we've talked about the COVID-19 pandemic, we've talked about abortion rights, issues with national policy and the healthcare program, and then you also have mentioned a lot of these individuals you see on a day-to-day basis. It seems like a lot of this could kind of weigh a lot on you. So I guess besides Hope and the other trainees and people you work with, how else do you like stay focused and uh, maintain that hope and courage in your work? I I think I maintain it because of the people that I meet who I'm really inspired by. I mean, this work can't be done alone. It has to be done with a community. When we did this kind of work, you know, at Brown Medical School, we started bringing boxed wine to our meetings. <laughs> um, and part of it is that, you know, it is really tiring and it's it's not worth it. It becomes really hard to think of it as worth it if you're not also building community at the same time. Uh, Something I think about a lot is this talk that I went to by Loretta Ross, who is like one of the champions and original champions of of reproductive justice and this amazing advocate. And she said, um, fighting Nazis should be fun. And so I think about that a lot. And I think it, you know, dovetails with this, you know, bringing boxed wine to your meetings is just, it's the right thing to do. And it should be fun. Fighting Nazis should be fun. And 
uh, obviously there are many times that it's not fun, but when I think about the people that I've gotten to meet because of this work and the way that they are incredible and make me better and make this world better. And I get to hang out with them because we care about these things and we're trying to do this thing. That makes fighting Nazis fun. That concludes this episode of the Global Visions podcast. Thank you for listening and thank you to Dr. Sai for the opportunity to speak with her. We'll see you next time.